Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, friends. Uh, welcome to Season 5 of uh, Wisdom of Friends Show. And I'm your host, Cal Ross. I hope you're having a wonderful day. And today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Ron Ryle. He's the CEO and founder of the High Road Institute, which works with the everyday leader to become a person who leads with intention and impact. Ron is considered a vanguard on leadership topics. His 40-plus years of business experience comes from working in two Fortune 500 companies, as well as from leading employee teams in closely held businesses. Ron has worked with Cabela's, Costco, Starbucks, Microsoft, Moss Adams, Radio Shack, the U.S. Navy, and several Northwestern universities. Ron's extensive wisdom and practical solutions contained in his 19 books and diverse leadership solutions provide both strategies and tactics for organizational success. He has trained and coached more than 14,000 leaders and business professionals throughout the United States and Canada, and he's also the author of The Reluctant Leader, Own Your Responsibility with Courage, which is now available on Amazon. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where we talk about various leadership topics, as in what makes someone a good leader? What are the qualities of a good team leader? And what are the most important decisions you make as a leader of your organization? And how do you ensure that your organization and its activities are aligned with your core values? I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Ron Rao. So good afternoon, Ron. Welcome to uh, this Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to uh, be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of uh, you. I first met you almost a year ago at the National Speakers uh, Association uh, Pacific Northwest uh, Summit at Mercer Island. And you were one of the few uh, people that came and talked to me. Uh, I was uh, it was my first time at that event, and uh, and you advised me on something that's really helped me a lot because I was struggling to come up with a keynote topic because I had so many topics I was dealing with, and then you helped me bring some clarity around it. And uh, by asking a very simple question that if you had just one message to give to thousands of people, what would that be? And that has really helped me uh, hone in on many, many different areas of my life and business as uh, clarity is power. And you really uh, made a contribution to me. And I knew back then that having you on the show and having you share your wisdom would be such a delight. And uh, I'm so glad that you took the time to be on this program. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Cal. And I'm honored and it was a pleasure to do so. Uh, I'm glad that that question sparked an interest in you because I had, I heard that question many years ago and it really got me thinking about what mine would be and I continue to hone that. That is so great. So one of the ways, uh, Ron, we kick off our show is by asking our guests a very simple yet profound question and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by and how have you applied it to your life? My favorite quote of all times is by Walt Disney. 
if you can dream it, you can do it. And as a, as a younger child, when I first uh, heard it, I think I was a teenager, it, it didn't make any sense. However, each time I think about it, it, it has so many different layers. And it's been true in terms of my life and my philosophy and how I conduct uh, not only my business but my personal life. Because we, we do not realize how great we can be. Um, it, it's just amazing how even the most actualized, the most accomplished individual, there's still more depth to them. So when I see people, and I was, I was exactly like this, so I, I can empathize with them, is that they just don't see what is possible for them, and they've given up or they, they've denied their greatness. So every one of us has a tremendous amount of greatness, and no matter how great you might feel about yourself, you can magnify it by a thousand, and that's truly who you are. And so while Disney's uh, quotation still continues to be on my mind about that, about being able to dream it and then being able to create it. No, I like that very much. And, uh, you know, one of the similar uh, phrase that I've heard early on in my life that's made a big difference for me personally was uh, Napoleon Hill's uh, uh, quote, which says, you know, whatever a man's mind can conceive and believe it, it can achieve. And I'm so glad that, you know, you've taken this uh, position on life that everybody has greatness. And you help people, just for the benefit of the audience here, Ron, uh, helps people uh, really seek out their own greatness with uh, bringing out the leadership in them. He's been a CEO and founder of High Road Institute and uh, and really uh, helping everyday leader to become a person who leads with intention and impact. And, and we'll get into that, Ron, as we uh, go through this podcast. But what I'm curious about is uh, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? My childhood was a typical American child. Uh, I was born in New Mexico, city of New Mexico, uh, excuse me, city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my entire family was born there. So we have some deep, deep roots going back several generations. So it was typical. I didn't have any privileges. Uh, my parents didn't make a lot of money. So we uh, knew about economy. It was also a very religious uh, family, so understanding uh, morals and values. Um, and so there was nothing unusual about it. However, some of the experiences I had as a child affected me deeply. I didn't realize it until later. But uh, so then when my, my uh, I was nine, my father left New Mexico for Southern California. He at the time was a teacher and the New Mexico schools were not paying very much. So he started looking around the country and we ended up in Southern California in the desert, 12 miles from the Mexican border and an hour from Yuma, Arizona. And so suddenly I was in a new environment and that's when I started feeling isolated that my life was was just sort of torn apart because everybody that I knew, everything that I had been used to for nine years was gone. I think that's when I started to deconstruct myself and reconstruct myself. But everything was was normal. I my parents couldn't afford college, so I had to do it on my own by working, saving money, got a scholarship. Uh, I didn't think I'd get married, and then in school I met a, a woman that just immediately I could tell that I wanted to to be part of her life and wanted her to be part of mine. And so we followed the same script, being a, um, a middle class family uh, with two children, uh, home, cars. We both worked to be able to afford that. So nothing is uh, has been unusual where, you know, like, for instance, I had a, a trauma or an accident or I accomplished something great. However, it's in the in just my everyday 
life that I've discovered that that's where leadership is about. And so you mentioned in the introduction about the everyday leader, a mother, a father is a leader. Someone who is leading a Boy Scout troop or Girl Scouts troop is a leader. A person who is heading a committee of, let's say, a PTA or Kiwanis or some organization like that, or maybe a church function raising money, that's what leadership is about. That's everyday leadership. And what I found is it's interesting is that, and I didn't e- didn't do this either until later, is that I didn't call that leadership. They don't call it leadership. That just I'm just doing what I was asked. And so we miss those moments of opportunities as everyday people to see the magic moments of our life, whether it's in terms of leadership or just affecting other people. Now, that is so great. And I I really uh, can uh, relate to the fact that, you know, growing up, having moved from uh, New Mexico to Southern California at a young age and then having to uh, find yourself and really uh, uh, taking that as as a challenge for your own life and then going on to uh, become so successful in your uh, career and your life and to now at this point, like being a CEO and founder of High Road Institute. So that brings up another question. Uh, so looking at your background, Ron, it seems like, you know, you've had some extensive experience, uh, business experience with Fortune 500 companies and uh, you've also uh, worked uh, with the U.S. Navy so is this something that uh, you knew you always were planning on doing or how did that journey began for you in the sense, uh, what it was U.S. corporation or the corporate career was the track that you said, this is what I'm going to do or how did that come about for you? What's the story? I call myself, Cal, the accidental expert. Uh, when I first started uh, in high school and college, I wanted to be in business, which was very rare for my family because they all either worked for the government, uh, they were teachers, were for not for profit. And nobody had ever been in what we call business. In fact, business people were 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 seen as a negative, you know, cutthroat, cheat, things like that. And I got to realize this is the 50s and 60s. But I was undeterred and I wanted to go in business, but I didn't know what that meant. At one time, I thought I wanted to be a banker uh, in my high school. I wrote that uh, my achievement would be I would retire as CEO of IBM. So that my dream was, but I didn't know what that was. When I went to college, I struggled to find a major. And I, uh, when I started my family, which is very interesting, just a side note, is I paralleled my dad, just like my father left New Mexico for opportunities in Southern California. We left Southern California for opportunities in the state of Washington, my wife and I, and that's where we grew our family. And so uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Well, I took a bookkeeping class, and I've always loved math. I've always loved money. I've always loved the black and white nature of numbers. And so bookkeeping was like, wow, this is cool. So I took more bookkeeping, cla- bookkeeping classes. Then I went to accounting. And in my final year in San Diego at a school called National University, an accelerated uh, institution, it was the founder of that style of teaching, I took classes from CEOs and CFOs and chief operating officers and CPAs who were in public practice. And the CPAs uh, said to me, Ron, if you wanted to really learn about business, become a CPA. Uh, most people think that that stands for constant pain in the ass, but it's really <laughs> certified certified public accountant. And so I did. I, I moved to Washington, took the CPA exam, went to work for a national CPA firm and then a local uh, regional firm. And I learned a lot. And so in 10 years of doing that, um, but I realized that it wasn't what I wanted to spend my career. And so then I 
crossed the road and became a controller, CFO, treasurer. And I did that for another 10, 11 years. But the whole time, after looking back, I realized I was a square peg in a round hole. I do not have a mindset of an accountant. I don't think like an accountant. I don't behave like an accountant. You know, I'm, a, I'm an oxymoron, a CPA with a sense of humor. And so I realized that I was a square peg in a round hole. But in looking over my life, I realized I've always, I've always been good in developing good people around me and leading an organization and leading people. But I didn't, again, define it as leadership. So then in 1992-1993, when I had my career crisis about what I wanted to do, somebody asked me a very critical question. And they said, Ron, what would you want to do for the rest of your life, even if you didn't get paid? And I said, speak. I had never, ever acknowledged that, even though I had done trainings as part of my uh, practice in CPA uh, profession, and I was part of association where I did seminars. I never acknowledged to myself that I wanted to speak, that I had a passion to be a professional speaker. And so I joined, I was already a member of Toastmasters, and I found out that I was very good at speaking, uh, sort of a diamond in the rough. And then I joined the National Speakers Association in 1993, and it was like coming home. These were people that were exactly like me, that had a passion to change the world, people that just were wanted to express their, their thoughts and ideas and have people share them, and more importantly, people that just were square pegs in a round hole. They didn't fit in corporate America. They didn't fit in a cubicle or an office space. Um, and so I said, wow, this is my tribe. And so then I began my speaking business, but I didn't know what I was speaking on. So over the years, as I look back to see what I did in terms of the books that I've written and the, the classes I've taught and the thousands and thousands of leaders I've met, I realized from the beginning I've been talking about leadership. I've been talking about the human element of business, which is people are the most important part of any business. Despite what a company says on their mission statement, it, it, it's not whether they treat people kindly or uh, me, kindly, benevolently or terribly – People will lead to the success of the organization, and so that helped me realize that's what I have been born to do and, and born to, to, uh, uh, to change the world in that area, that we need to treat people as, as assets, as you know, real human beings, and that's still missing for business. So that was the driver for building the High Road Institute and for being a leadership coach, but I didn't. I never planned it. I, I still, to this day, it's hard to internalize at times that I've written 19 books, that I've spoken before 14, 15,000 people across the United States and Canada. I'm just an ordinary guy from New Mexico who just had a very you know, standard uh, vanilla life, and yet I've accomplished this, these things. So obviously, I guess I had some greatness in myself that I didn't recognize. No, that is uh, really f uh, fascinating and uh, beautiful that you share your journey with us here. And and I, I want to kind of like uh, talk more about the books you've written. But one of the things that I want to go back to your sharing, you mentioned that early on uh, during growing up, there was a negative connotation regarding business and growing up in a family you know, or your dad and your parents worked for the government and, uh, the, you know, they were teachers and things like that. So was there like a s specific moment or was there uh, particularly any incident that happened that made you say, 
I'm going to do something different. I want to go pursue business. Because the reason I ask that is oftentimes we get questions uh, from our audience that, you know, how do we find out what is our calling? How do we find out what our passion is? And it seems like early on you had an inclination to go after something that you really wanted to do things differently. So was there a story around it? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. Yes, there is. It's probably going to surprise you. And the simple answer is that I wanted to choose my own clothes. I wanted to have my own hairstyle. Um, I I am what my wife and children would call obstinate. Once I've chosen my path, I I want it. And I've been like that, a willful child. And so my parents, because they were teachers, um, they didn't have a lot of money. And so we were a a large family of five. And my dad got paid once a month. So by the end of the month, we were scraping uh, the bottom of the barrel. So I couldn't uh, choose my clothes. My, my parents bought what was the cheapest. And so I wanted money. Well, how do you get money? You get a job. And so from the age of 11, I have been working at some job. I had a paper route. I washed dishes. I mowed lawns. I did anything for money. And so it was my need to be self-supporting that led me to realize that I had to work for somebody who had the money. Um, now, I know that sounds self-serving, but what my point is, is that was my family's psychology and for generations is that you know money makes you bad and lack of money makes you good. But if you are poor, you resent the rich. So I think that that's where the philosophy is not trusting anybody in business. So going back to my experience, I didn't see that as true. I, I saw that, no, business really was about uh, providing a, a service of some sort and somebody willing to pay you for that. And, of course, the harder the job, the, the more you got paid. And now I see that it was adding value. But and so it was about money. So I did anything for money. I've been an entrepreneur since age of 11. And even though for over 30 years I worked for somebody else, I still had this entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit that was growing in me and, and gaining momentum. And that's why in 1993, when I started my business, I've never looked back. I've never worked for somebody else since then. And so this has been the most satisfactory job I've ever had and the scariest because every day I have to face um, the unknown in terms of where's my next client going to come from? What's my next project? What's the next thing I'm going to do without anybody telling me uh, what, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing? No, that, that was is, a catalyst. No, this is this is really a fascinating uh, story. I mean, it seems like there was that moment that uh, you were willing to question the beliefs that uh, you were uh, indoctrinated with uh, growing up or the culture or the society that business wasn't really a bad thing. It was something that you can add value to to your consumer and uh, for a service. And and that's such a great uh, mental shift to have early on in life. And, and that brings up another question for me. It's like when you look back at your life up until now, what would you say was like the breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is the turning point uh, or the strategic inflection point, if you will, when life was never the same again moment. It was a book, reading a book by Maxwell uh, Smaltz or Maltz uh, called Psycho-Cybernetics. And I read that uh, after I had my family and I was trying to figure out what my career was. So we were just beginning uh, renting, didn't have a lot of money. My wife was uh, trying to uh, work part time so we could afford a house. And I read that book and it was a changing moment because in the book, uh, Maxwell, Dr. Smaltz 
found that as a cosmetic surgeon, he could change somebody's appearance on the outside. And the person still felt the same on the inside, ugly, uh, you know, they were unhappy, even though they were paying, paying him lots of money and he was using his expertise to make them look like they wanted. And so he started thinking about what's going on and he recognized that it's about the mind. What we have between our ears defines our reality. And again, at the time, I didn't understand it that I do to the extent, but I read that book and it changed my life. It's like, wow, uh, you know, my sort of my struggling, my unhappiness, uh, my dissatisfaction with what my life was, I'm in charge of that. Um, and so over the years, it's been a ratcheting up where that was the first step forward. And then uh, you know, go back. Anytime we, we change, we take two steps forward and one step back. So I would go through these where I take two steps forward and go, wow, here's another realization and then uh, go back. Uh, so there's a series of, of books, uh, most of which I've forgotten, uh, but they were influential. The next one was about a decade later called Conversations with God. And I know that may sound religious, but it's really more about inter internal, the same concept of uh, Dr. Smaltz is that that what we, who we see we are is actually who we become. So we manifest from the, uh, the inside out. And that one was another defining moment where, wow, I, I remember reading that book and I had such both a high and a headache that I had to lay on the couch for two or three hours to absorb what the story, what the, the moral of the book was and uh, continue to, to, to uh, read more of the series. And so over the years, I've, I've discovered both in quotations. Uh, I mean, if you go back even to Walt Disney's quote, which I acquired as a teenager, it's the same message. And so now that I'm on sort of the looking back, that message has hit me in so many different ways from speakers that I've experienced, people that I've met, um, books that I've read. They pretty much all say the same thing is that we are greater than what we think we are. And the only thing that holds us back is ourselves. Now that is uh, really inspiring. And I think, um, what I'm hearing uh, from your sharing is that the book that really made a profound difference for you is like the Psycho-Cybernetics book uh, by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. And I've read that book. It is indeed uh, one of the uh, strategic defining books that anybody who reads it will uh, experience a shift. I mean, it's really a profound book. And uh, and it also seems like uh, Conversations with God, which is by Neil uh, Donald Walsh, and we'll include all of that on the show links here. But I think uh, the, the underlying theme that I'm hearing is that you were able to realize that uh, you are not limited by the circumstances, that you can create your own identity, you can create your own uh, lifestyle and the life that a uh, career that you choose by making powerful choices. And it's really your self-image that makes and dictates uh, your beliefs and uh, how you uh, design your life. So it seems like you've achieved a lot of great successes with those kind of philosophies and imagination with, uh, that you mentioned earlier uh, also played a big uh, part in your success. So that brings up another question. And this is something that we've asked all our guests on the show is, you know, challenges and failures. Uh, what were one or two biggest challenges that you faced in your life? And, uh, and most importantly, what lessons have you learned from them that helped you navigate life going forward? 
Well, I think the biggest challenge was, was as I discovered my self-belief about myself, um, the, the, the training, the learnings from my parents, uh, grandparents, the, the church that I belong to about how we are wicked and evil and bad and, and things like that and, and discovering that that is not true, but because that I internalized it. And so that led to my philosophy is to question everything, everything that somebody tells me. I question, not that I doubt it, but I just want to know, are they repeating what they heard from somebody else, from somebody else, from somebody else? Or have they really thought? And I've discovered that there are very few original thinkers, people who who question everything. And so uh, it so that's the asset of my, if you use the term failure, of just following exactly what people in my life as a as a young child and a young adult told me, until I realized that I needed to question not only myself but everything else. And the second one I think is the fact that. Because my failure as a CPA, and again, it's not a failure, just the fact that I was not meant for that profession after doing it for nearly uh, uh, 20-some years, is that was the aha moment that realized, wow, I need to move on. Uh, And so I think probably the reason that I stayed so long was I was too afraid to move. It was comfortable, um, what was out there, and... That, so, so that realizing that was another major catalyst that said, okay, <laughs> Ron's trying to start living what you believe, which is you make your own reality and can move on to that. Oh, by the way, Cal, just to backtrack just for a second, two additional books that I would add to the to mention are by Richard Bach. The first one, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Love it, and, yeah. And then Illusions. I mean, Illusions was the one that truly capped it all uh, in terms of understanding, wow. You know, what we call life, we have no clue. <laughs> we, we are clueless. And that, that one again, that, if there's one that I go back and read again and again, it is Illusions because there's so much to that short book and yet it's a powerful book. And so, that, so going back to your, your questions is those two – and again, I don't like the term failure because there's no such thing in life as failure. It's just not achieving what uh, I set out to do. And so I didn't achieve what I thought. However, what I got uh, is much more amazing than I could ever have have intended from the beginning. So we always have the, for, the, the foremost intention that we're thinking, but there's also a deeper intention that we are not aware of that I think Blake is more powerful and more compelling. And it's a dual-edged sword because it could be intention leading to doom and harm, or it could be intention leading to lightness and greatness. I love that, and that is very inspiring. And one of the ways that I look at uh, failure is the way I've conditioned my mindset over the years is there is no failure, it's only feedback. And uh, if the intended outcome is not achieved for whatever reason, I'm still okay with it because as long as I can uh, build relationships along the way, I can gain new skills or gain new experiences, it's going to serve me really well uh, long term. So no, that's such a great message that you have uh, for, all, for all of us here on the podcast that there is nothing as uh, failure. It's only the choices that we make. And uh, it's, it's all in our imagination. And we'll definitely include some of these books uh, that you mentioned in our show notes, uh, uh, Illusions and uh, Jonathan Livington, Livingston Siegel by uh, Richard Bach. Uh, now, that brings up uh, another question, uh, Ron. I know that uh, you've written 19 books 
and uh, you've created some amazing leadership solutions that provide strategies and tactics for company success. And and one of the books that you're well known for in the community and out there in the leadership uh, domain is The Reluctant Leader, Own Your Responsibility with Courage, uh, which is also available on Amazon, and we'll include that in our show notes. So my question to you is, what is a reluctant leader? And tell us more about how did you come about writing this book? Great question. I've had the privilege of, of coaching thousands and thousands of business professionals that had titles and responsibilities as leaders. And what I noticed immediately, and I continue to see it over the decades that I've done that, is that these men and women do not call themselves leaders. They had titles of CFO, COO, controller, director of finance, uh, director of human resources, different titles. And yet if I asked them directly, are you a leader? The answer inevitably was no, I am not. So I began to wonder what, why is that? Because if you look on an organization chart, that's a leadership role. It's, it's a given. You have decision-making authority. You are responsible for resources, both people and budget, and yet you don't define yourself as a leader. And this, again, was early on, so I've, I've been listening. I'm an observer. I, my research is in the trenches, is listening and, and talking to people and getting insights. And so every time I would do a presentation with these folks, I would listen and, and observe and try to find out. And what I realized is that a majority of them, over 70% of people in a leadership role, are very uncomfortable with the obligations and responsibilities of leadership. Now, the reasons are diverse, but they boil down to simply they don't like the accountability because as a leader, the buck stops with you. And we human beings hate accountability. Another one is the fact that people will take pot shots at you. You know, if, if you're an employee, you are one of the group, and so you blend in. However, you suddenly are the supervisor, and you will be criticized. People will question everything you do, and there's many people that don't like that. In addition, another one is the fact that, guess what? Everybody's looking for you for answers, and if you don't have the answers, you don't want to be embarrassed. So our ego prevents us from wanting to look stupid. So we'd rather say, I don't want to be a leader. So, so basically, these folks – and, and there's a tremendous an, a number of them, is in a leadership role and says, in their mind, I am not a leader. So that, again, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that we talked about earlier is that they don't act as leaders. For instance, I, in my training sessions and my speeches and my presentations, I take people through experiences, and I can see how they respond to the challenge that I give them. And m- most of them, the, the 70%, shy away from that. They just don't want to engage, and yet I'm inviting them to to show who they are. The 30% that do, there's only about a, a top 10% that truly get what leadership is. And I can tell, I can just spot it right, right away. The moment I see them or they walk through the door, they have a different way of holding themselves and being and conversing. And then the other 20%, they get leadership, but not to the extent that the top 10% do. So go back to, to my point is simply is that that's what I noticed. And so it was 
the, the first year I saw it, the second year I saw it, the third year, and it continued on, it even continues to this day. So when I thought of coming up with a book about, let's see, I think I came up with the idea in 2010 or 2011 and started talking to people about the book, I heard more often than not, that's me. I'm reluctant. Or I'm married to somebody reluctant. Or it's like, wow, you must be talking about me. So I knew I, I, I hit a nerve. Uh, of that and so it's been it's been proving true in that every time that I talk about the reluctant leader someone will exactly have that same reaction you're talking about me I don't like being called the leader I don't like being the one in charge and this and this even applies believe it or not to people that start a business people that are entrepreneurs and and have employees working uh, for them they do not define those themselves as a leader and it's usually a person that's technically trained in some skill, could be truck driver, doctor, lawyer, CPA, um, a drill press operator, and they're in charge of, of people and getting things done through people and goals and things like that. And they do not define themselves as leader. And that's, I think, contributing to the leadership crisis that we have not only in the United States but around the world is a tremendous amount of people are in a leadership position and yet do not define themselves, and so they miss the opportunity to have influence and impact, which is basically what leadership is about, having positive impact and beneficial influence. Now, that is a really, uh, really a great point there. And I remember uh, a quote that Abraham Lincoln had said once that, you know, if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. And, uh, and, and one of the things that the theme about reluctance, I mean, I think it's uh, historically that's been something that you've noticed, uh, you know, with a lot of people like even Gandhi, who did not want to take on a leadership role, but just the circumstances uh, and the people around him uh, put him in a position of uh, being that leader that he finally chose to take on that role of a father of the nation for India. But, you know, there was this beautiful article that I was reading uh in the, the training journal uh, of June of 2017 by Paul Russell, and he talks about uh, George Washington's uh, presidency and uh, something to the effect that December 23rd, 1783, when uh, George Washington returns to his uh, Mount Vernon farm after the Revolutionary War, you know, all he wanted to do was with, be with his wife, Martha, and his two stepchildren. And but what Washington had not counted on was his social conscience, and it was that that allowed him to be persuaded by, <clears throat> excuse me, by James Madison and Henry Knox to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787, whereby he was elected as the president. And and I think uh, the point is what you're what I'm seeing the the similarity in your sharing here is that oftentimes we are thrust into this position of leadership that we may not have planned for, but having the self-fulfilling prophecy that you're not a leader uh, could kind of like really uh, stop you from achieving greatness. And I think uh, having that belief and having that uh, uh, you know environment that really shapes your leadership, I think, makes a big difference. Oh, oh yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's, it's interesting, if, if you do study some of the most impactful people in our society and around the world. Gandhi, you mentioned, Mother Teresa is another one. Um, Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt and his uncle Teddy Roosevelt, as well as JFK, they did not define themselves as leader, but they were tested at a moment of truth. In fact, Winston Churchill, there's going to be a movie about him come out very soon. 
Same thing is they were in a defining moment when they had to realize, okay, there's no going back as I'm being looked upon. And they stepped through that, what I call the leadership door, whether they were pushed, invited, or shoved through that door, uh, they walk through it. The rest of the 70% do not, or they walk through it and come back. Oh, I don't want to do that. That's not, you know, what, what, I'm not paid to do that. I don't want to be that, that, that person. Yeah, and so even the greatest leaders that we have ever seen in our history, both the U.S. and around the world, were reluctant at first. No one is born to be a leader. No, no person at all. No, that is such a good point. And and that brings up another question is, uh, in your own life, can you name a person who's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader, uh, maybe somebody who has been a mentor to you, or uh, anybody that you want to give a shout out to that's really influenced you? Well, the the quick answer, of course, is my grandmother, uh, because she told me early on, whatever I decided to do, whatever I made up my mind, I could uh, do and she inspired me because she was an entrepreneur in a day and age where women did not own their own businesses and she basically sold Avon but she was always doing something uh, for, for others but in terms of mentors in the business world I'm I'm sad to say nobody really because every, that was the catalyst for starting uh, the High Road Institute and the philosophy is all the people that I have worked for in my entire career from high school up until I left the work world were terrible leaders, and they did the, the their best to try to deter me from being successful. And what I mean by that is they used humiliation tactics. They used um, intimidation. Uh, they used guilt um, to try to get me to try to sort of motivate me, which is not the right term, but that would be how they would describe it. And it wasn't just me. It was their entire staff. And so I, I've never had a positive mentor. I've never had that person that I could look up to. Now, again, people that I've read about, baseball players, Jackie Robinson is an example. Uh, and then, of course, the, the presidents that I mentioned, when I read their biographies, they were my mentors. But, of course, it was a one-way mentorship. I was just reading about their life and inspired, and I took lessons from it, and it that helped me. But, no, I, I'd love to say that there were some people that were just super in my life, but other than my 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 grandmother. Now, my father, who uh, passed away a few years ago, when I wrote the eulogy for him, I did a reflection, and I saw something in his life that I had never seen before as the rebellious teenager, you know, the angry child, was the fact that he was a constant, steady person. And so the steadiness, the, the every day doing something a little better than the day before, uh, what was so, sort of what I modeled myself. And so in a, in a fact, at the end of his life, I discovered he was a mentor, though he wouldn't describe it, and he didn't intend it. It was just how he lived his life was what I realized how I want to live mine. No, it's so great. And that brings up uh, one question that I'm really curious about is, uh, you know, having gone through this journey of life, the ebb and flow of life, um, what would you say at this point in your career, in your life, is what's your definition of a successful life or a good life? For me, I have different levels of success. But the, the one that I would be the top of all of them would be that I have positive impact on others. One of my gifts, my superpowers, is simply this, is that when I converse with somebody and they're, they're open with me and they tell me about themselves and I get to know them, 
I can come up with solutions for them. And I don't know where this comes from. Is I just have this ability to offer them two, three, four, or five ideas. For example, you mentioned the first time I met you, you were a stranger. I empathize with you because I do tend to walk in other people's shoes, and I realize that you know you felt uncomfortable, and you know you wanted to, you know, you wanted to feel grounded that you were accepted, and so I did that immediately to you. And then in in our simple conversation, because you were open to me, I offered you an idea. And then I know the second time that we met, uh, when you told me about this and I got to know you better, I offered you ideas. I cannot help myself. It is just who I am. And that's what has led to the 19 books is that offering ideas and suggestions and tools and solutions, you know, people tend to focus on the problems, but no many, not that many people come up with solutions. I just have this innate ability. And at times it, it overwhelms me because where did that come from? It, boom, it just popped in my head. But I, and I love doing it. So that's a definite success, success is when I sit down with you and I offer you uh, three suggestions. A second one is, is when I can have a positive in, impact and I leave that. For instance, to me, the greatest leader is a person who has impact on the group even when they're not in the room. And so I hope that every situation that I'm in is that I have that sort of impact. Now, my ego says I always do, and the reality is I don't, and yet I strive to, to do that. So those are two of the definitions of success. The third one is that I get to live my life my own way, and when I get out of my way, I'm exactly doing exactly that. No, that's uh, great, very inspiring, and I think, uh, and I can attest to the fact that you are indeed uh, a leader, and you know you inspire the people around you, and uh, so, no, that is so great that you share that, and the, the impact and the contribution that you make in our community, in our, uh, on the society with your writing, your speaking, and uh, it's it's just been uh, really amazing. Now, here's another, and you mentioned something that I want to kind of like go back to real quick is superpower. That and this is something that I've heard from uh, one of our mutual friends, Earl Bell, who was on the uh, show uh, a few weeks ago, and he talked about uh, knowing your superpower, and that's really the access to, uh, you know, your greatness in a way. So, my question to you is, <clears throat> and I know we're going to get a lot of questions from our audience regarding, you know, what is a superpower? How do we? understand what a superpower is. What would you say to someone who is looking to find what their superpower is? How should they go about it? And what exactly is a superpower? A superpower is an innate strength that we don't, that we may not at first realize that we have. And yet, when you step back and look and reflect and think without ego about what you have done and what you've accomplished and, and the milestones, is that you use that superpower. For instance, one of my – I have like the a, a superpower and then sub-superpowers. One of mine is curiosity. So when I met you, I was curious about who you are, what you're about, what you know, what would you like out of life, and, of course, coming to National Speakers Association, what your topic is and how you approach it. So curiosity is, is one that supports my superpower. And so to the advice to your listeners is to reflect and figure out what's that thing you go to all the time that helps you to get through uh, situations, but also that people commend you about. You might be a good mixer. You might be the person that no matter what group you're in, you get along with everyone. It could be your superpower is that you ask the, the, the right question. You know, Earl Bell, you mentioned one of the things he does is he asks questions and then suddenly boom he comes up with an insight that just 
blows everybody away. Uh, and so that's just an example. Uh, Cal, you, one of your superpowers is that you are able to make people feel at ease very quickly and also uh, bring value from two different cultures that blend so well and being able to um, share ideas. Like, for instance, this, this podcast, this is something that, you know, you, you just took the idea, ran with it and made it successful. And I know that this is just the beginning of your, your journey based on your superpower of wanting to have impact and include people in that. It's not just having the impact, but also taking people along for the ride. In other words, you're the, you're the, the limo driver, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like you that analogy. That. <laughs> yeah, you want everybody in the back of the limo to have fun and, and at the same time get, their, get to their destination and still engage them. So you don't shut yourself off from, from your passengers as you engage them as you're in, in the trip and they, they like that. But going back to the, the question again is a superpower. Another way to tell your superpower is that it gets you in trouble is that whatever is our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And that's because we rely on it. So it's, in other words, uh, in consulting, there's a saying that if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And the same is true with your superpower is that it'll get you in trouble. For instance, mine of, of my sub-superpower of curiosity, sometimes I ask questions when I shouldn't be asking questions, when I need to be listening. Uh, another one of my sub superpowers is being an excellent listener. And so I can hear what's going on beneath the surface. I can get the sense. I can walk into any group and I get the, the subtext about how relationships are and what people are feeling and thinking. However, sometimes I shouldn't be doing that. I, I, I need to be more present, more in the moment. And so you will get in trouble with your superpower and it also gets you out of trouble. So if you pay attention to those those two things, it gives you a sense. It, your superpower also is part is connected to your motivation. And, and motivation, very simply, is you either move towards something positive or away from something negative. And so if you feel like you're running from something that's really others could define that's a benefit of you, that is telling you something about your superpower. Uh, if you are constantly getting up every day and looking forward to something that you want to do, that gives you some clues. It doesn't tell you exactly what the superpower is. It gives you some clues. The best way, though, is to talk to the people that know you and that care about you and love you and really listen to what they say. And I would just ask that question. What do you believe is my greatest strength? What do you think is what do you believe is my superpower? That one thing. Like, for instance, Superman could fly, Superman could bend steel, but really Superman was a hero and he wanted to take his special gifts and make this a better world. So that was, a, that in, in a sense, his superpower. So if you give them that analogy and say, okay, I'm, I, you know, if I'm like Superman, or I'm like Batman, or I'm like Yoda, what would you say is my, my, you know, my super strength, the thing that's unique about me? And then listen, and you're going to get a diverse you get diverse answers. However, is if you listen to them and pay attention and ask a few probing questions, you will get some themes, and that will help you to do that. No, that is uh, really informative. And just to kind of paraphrase and recap here, it's really uh, looking and reflecting back on our life and seeing, you know, what are some of the milestones and successes we've had? What are some of our strengths? And then really like some things that we are looking forward to would give us a clue or asking people around us to say, you know, giving them examples like Batman or Superman, like, you know, what would you think would be our superpower? And then 
<clears throat> and I like what you also said about, you know, our strengths can also be a greatest weakness. And that comes out of uh, one of the Taoist philosophies because you rely too much on your strengths. And that becomes like uh, the only thing that it becomes a one-trick pony uh, oftentimes. And that could lead to, uh, you know, in situations, in certain situations that can turn into a weakness. And uh, now this is this is really a great. And then the other question that I have for you, and this is on a hypothetical situation. And let's say we had a time machine. And if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, uh, let's say uh, your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? It would be very simple, is don't stop yourself. Uh, don't let your self-doubt uh, prevent you because it's real simply your ego. And, of course, it's an illusion, is that anything that we believe, whether it's good or not so good about ourselves, it's, it's, it's an illusion. So in other words, if I believe I'm Superman and I try to pursue it, it's you know, not healthy. But the fact that I believe I'm Superman changes me in some way. If I believe that I can't speak in public, guess what? That becomes true as well. And then tied to that is I would remind myself to not pay attention to judgment because we assume that the other person is thinking X or Y or Z about us, whether it could be a good thought or a bad thought. Well, guess what? If that other person is an illusion, then their thought that you are um, not smart, that you are not very pretty or that you don't know much all you're doing is you're setting up that other person to reflect that. But since that person doesn't really exist, it's your thought that's creating that. So our self-doubt, our, our judge, the, the fear, the judgment we feel from others is really our own mind. It's playing a trick on ourselves. So we're manifesting. We're creating a reality that's not true, but only because we thought about it. So when you think about that, think about we, what we think we are. It is. It goes to s- such deep levels. It's true about judgment. It's true about our self-limiting beliefs as we've established it to be true and it really is not true. No, I like that. It's really uh, really inspiring and very good point about not paying a lot of heed to uh, other people's uh, opinions and judgments. Uh, the other question, and we're going to switch gears here, and before we do that, I have a couple of questions for you as for I know, any places that you've traveled to recently or, or throughout your life, your career, that you've always been fascinated about, and uh, what would that place be? Well, any place that has where, where Mother Nature has done amazing uh, work, like, for instance, the Grand Canyon, uh, the, the, uh, the some of the arches in Utah, but we also, my wife and I like to travel to cities that inspire us. And San Francisco is a magnificent city because of the neighborhoods, uh, Lake Tahoe, um, Santa Barbara is one of my favorite places. So we just like to travel and, and visit places that um, just where we can relax. Because when we go on vacation, we are not the type of people that sit by the pool and order cocktails. Is we walk the city, we walk the area. And one time we're in San Francisco, we did 13 miles in one day just exploring that so any city that is unique and and uh, has some flavor to it we were in uh, chicago we walked a lot we were in uh, manhattan we walked a lot because that's how you really see the city and get to explore and see the sights no it's so great is there uh, any uh, hobbies and interests that people may not know about ron ryle <laughs> I like games. I like games. Games that I can win. Uh, one of that is I like to challenge myself with the game. And if it's a friendly game of 
some sort with other people, that's uh, fun, as long as at least a conversation. But I don't like cutthroats. I've got to win type of games. I also like games myself, puzzles. Um, every day I do some t- sort of mental simulation puzzles. Related to that is my health, as my health is probably my greatest uh, gift that I was given, and yet I need to take better care of it. So doing something healthy, whether it's exercising, walking, uh, yoga, uh, Pilates, Uh, My wife is going to teach me Tai Chi, so trying something like that. And then just to meet people. I mean, I'm a people person, and that's why I say I I was a square peg in a round hole as as an accountant because the traditional accountant is not seen as a people person, and people attracted to that profession would prefer the numbers to uh, people situations. I've always been drawn by the human element of business, which is you know people and their drama and their psychosis and you know all the things that they do. Uh, office politics, and that's that's what I thrive on is those types of things. So when I get to meet somebody new like you, like I, we did not too long ago, I just it's like wow, you know, here's a new friend, and that's another definition of success is getting to meet people and finding out their story, and then seeing if I can enter that story in some way and keep them as a long term friend. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yes, I like that. And you've always been a great friend to me, Ron. And switching gears here, uh, I just want to get into some of the questions we have received from our audience. And uh, we probably may not be able to get through all of them in the interest of time, but uh, I'll try to get through some of them. Uh, The first one is, uh, what stops people, in your opinion, from achieving their fullest potential? Besides fear. I mentioned earlier self-limiting belief, believing that you cannot do that, and then finding evidence to prove it. That's the thing is we are, we are uh, feedback machines, and so we uh, need feedback, and we thrive on feedback. And so when, you, when the feedback, only feedback you receive is your own mind, then guess what? It's, going to, it's usually going to be a, of a negative nature, believing that you cannot lead, you cannot supervise people, you cannot hold someone accountable. And so that's, to me, that is the thing that stops people from being, to find, from finding the leader within themselves, to be a self-leader and leading others. Great. And then the uh, other question is, uh, what was the best piece of advice you've received in life? Oh, there's been so many different pieces of advice indirectly by the people that uh, I admire. But I think the, the, the advice is to, to try. Uh, actually, what, no, actually, going back to um, Yoda's line, you know, there is no uh, try. There is just do or not do. And so I've heard that in many different forms. But the, the thing is, is if you just try, if you're just testing, if you're just weak, weak minded about it or, or only put not put your whole spirit in it, it's not going to be the experience that you're hoping to get. And so, you know, we just have to be all in. And, and that's what life is about experience and that's what leadership is about experience yeah i like that leadership is about experience and life is about experiences absolutely uh the other question is what is one characteristic or trait in your opinion that you believe every leader should possess i'll give you two the first one is being open to feedback uh, what I found is the, the the higher up a person goes in an organization in terms of leadership and influence is they are afraid of feedback uh, because we all have this self-limiting belief that we are worse than we are when, <laughs> when it's actually the opposite. So a CEO does not want feedback from his team or her team because it might burst their bubble. And so they begin to exist in a bubble and they only listen to their own feedback or they only listen to the people that confirm what they believe about themselves. 
And so self-awareness, being open, being willing to be wrong, being willing to be vulnerable, uh, be willing to question your own motives and intentions and get feedback is, is number one. The second one is what I mentioned earlier that we human beings hate, and that is being accountable. Because I'm an expert in accountability. I've done a lot of training on it and a lot of writing. And we only learn accountability from the people around us uh, as children. Well, if you grew up in an environment where there was actually no accountability, you don't have it and you won't show it. And, and we only know accountability when it doesn't exist. So going back to accountability is a leader needs to be accountable. Because I, if, if I'm your boss, for instance, uh, Cal, I cannot hold you accountable until I'm accountable. Even though I will demand it from you, it's a false it's, – it's built in falsehood because I won't hold myself accountable. And so I can't expect it nor demand it from you, though I pretend to. And that's what I found that most of the people I work for. They wanted me to be accountable, but yet they were willing to lie and cheat and, and uh, humiliate and abase and do all kinds of negative things, and yet they expected great things from me. So the second one I would say is to be truly accountable at the deepest level of what it means. And it's taken me probably uh, seven to ten years to figure out what that accountability truly means. And the average person does not understand that level. No, I like that. The two important things, uh, just to uh, paraphrase here, is one being being open to receiving feedback. Because no matter, uh, you know, there is that saying by Ken Blanchard, I believe, uh, one of the leadership uh, training experts out there, uh, that feedback is the breakfast of champions. And uh and I, I totally like what you just said about accountability because, uh, you know, we always lead by example and it's hard for others to follow us uh, if you're not setting an example for them to look up to. So that uh, the other the question them, here, if I can interject, yes. Cal, the two of them are related, because if you're not being accountable, you definitely don't want feedback. And if you listen to feedback, it'll be telling you whether you're, you're accountable or not. So you can see that it does uh, nest with one another. That's an excellent point. And. And, and I'm curious about uh, here, the next question is, uh, you know, how do we as leaders in an organization or in as uh, leaders within a family or community, what, what would you say is how do we communicate our core values to our people who are looking up to us or, you know, are having, uh, you know, they believe in us? What's the best way, in your opinion, you found as a leader to communicate those values and a vision? Of what we are look, you know, where we are going, where we are headed. Well, the vision is is what we put in our mind of where we want to go, and the values are the 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 the, the way that we do it. Like for instance, if you want to be a good leader, one of the values is listening. One of the, another value is uh, being vulnerable and open, and so it's how we live it. Uh, specifically, your question is in terms of the values is if you really listen to your soul, if you meditate, if you pray, if you're quiet, your body will tell you when you are out of alignment with your values. One of the things that I use when I do coaching is uh, body testing because your body never lies. And I can pose a question to somebody and their muscles will tell me whether they're lying or not. Uh, and so if you are not living with your values, then there's something in your life. You're either anxious, your stomach hurts, uh, your eye twitches, uh, your butt puckers, whatever, something about that. The other thing is that when you profess to have, like, for instance, people say, I'm accountable, you know, I can tell by their actions th that they're not. Uh, so that's what I help them do is to be self-reflective to, to figure that out. 
And so your values are based on what your purpose in life. We all came into this world as human beings with a purpose or an intention. And so your values are, refl- are reflected, of, of, reflected of that. Uh, and so I think if you spend some time actually writing and journaling and trying to discover why you're, you exist here on earth, you will get a sense of your purpose. And from there, because the values are how you achieve it, then you do some writing on the values. And the way you can tell when a value is being cha- – uh, you cross a value is that you get angry, you get defensive, you become – you get to the three Ds, denial, uh, deflection, or, 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 or uh, defend, uh, defending yourself. And so if you, let's say, profess to be, profess to be open or unbiased, you know, you love everybody of every nationality. But as soon as you say that and you start feeling that or, or somebody says, hey, but I noticed that you, you know, you sort of talk negatively about people from XYZ com- uh, country and I start defending myself. OK, I really don't have that value. I, I said I did, but my body is and my mind, my conscience is telling me that I really don't. So that's where coaching and self-reflection and talking to people uh, or praying or whatever you do is the way to get a sense of not only your purpose, it also helps you define your values. No, it's so great. And uh, some of the practices that I've personally adopted in my life early on that's really been a game changer is having a kind of a morning ritual of uh, what I call priming, which is, uh, you know, meditation followed by exercise and journaling and really being grateful for the things that uh, could be very small things as well. And that's really helped uh, be in alignment with what I truly desire and having the purpose in life. Uh, the other question is, what is the lesson that took you personally, Ron, a longest to learn? I think part of it was to take myself out of the equation. And I think we all humans do this to some extent, but when I make a decision or decide something, my ego comes into play. It's just who we are. Self de- ego is our self-definition. And if my ego is in the way and I'm not able to get past that or to put it aside, then guess what? I'm, I'm going to muck things up. For instance, let's say I, I want to hire somebody, and I, I always hire people who are, I believe are have greater skills than I do. And so if I'm hiring somebody – and I put myself in the equation, well, I'm going to feel bad because this person uh, can do this and I can't. Or, you know, I don't know if this is the person that I communicate with. Well, that's me. That's my ego. And so th- that's been hard because as, as, as a human being, we do that. And then naturally, as I said, I told you about some of my, my childhood and the type of people that I work for. <laughs> Uh, to protect myself, I had to myself. I had to um, develop an, a, a strong ego to deal with humiliation and people putting me down. And then, of course, th- there's a professional speaker. When I'm in front of an audience, whether it's three or you know, five thousand people, man, there's a lot of acclaim in there. People are going, "Wow, you know, Rod is the expert. He knows." And so, you know, it, it feels good. It feels good for my feeds my ego, and I have to re- realize, okay, I'm no longer the speaker. I'm not that great person um that i'm just an ordinary person and so i have to get past that so that's just a uh, i don't want to say a struggle but it's just a constant lesson to figure out okay is my ego in the situation or not and if it is how do i get it out of the equation that's great it's getting out of your own way essentially and uh 
keep reminding that ego can be uh, really the enemy here of our own progress. And no, that is fantastic. And we're going to get into our next section here. And that is a rapid fire round. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions, uh, Ron. And it's the first response that comes to your mind. And of course, if you feel uh, that you want to elaborate on any one of them, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. And Ron, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, the first question I have for you is, who is your favorite music band? Uh, the Beatles. They were really in, uh, influential in terms of who I was as a, as a teenager, so I always okay. say that. Uh, and then uh, the follow-up question to that is, who's your favorite Beatle? John Lennon, because he changed life. He was a very egotistical, um, unemotional person, and if you listen to the, the lyrics later in life, he did a complete 180 and he was in touch with um, some of the concepts I shared. Great. And then the next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? I, I go back to Teddy Roosevelt because Teddy Roosevelt saw the coming of World War II uh, long before it happened. He saw the what the Japanese would do. He saw what Germany would do. And he started getting America ready for that. And so it had been great to, to see when he got elected and, and be the fly on the wall to see how he understood that. Because this is a man did not have a lot of resources and education, and yet he saw the future uh, 80, 50, 60 years before it happened. Mm. And then uh, the other question is, uh, if you could ask God one question, what would that be? It would be, who created you hmm i like that that's a very interesting question Uh, the five most important things in life according to you uh let's see Uh, people possibilities uh, pleasantness and pleasure because we are human beings after all the color purple it just reminds me, just you know, purple is such a unique color. People shy away from it. Now you're thinking the fifth one would be P, but it's not, and that is free will. Mm. The the ability to make choices uh, like that. And then uh, finally, the last question within the rapid fire round is: If you could have one message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? It would be my purpose, which is that you are. Uh, that you can do what you choose and that would be signed by if i could quote it you know you know quotation you see on the billboard somebody said something is that you can do anything you choose and that would be signed by free will i like that yeah that's excellent and then uh moving on to our final section this is a wrap-up section i just have the final three questions for you and the first one is ron what is your current personal or business passion project that uh, you're looking forward to in the next six months or a year uh, there's two, and they're both coming to fruition very quickly. The first one is a, a, a book about uh, feminine leadership or women leaders, is that we do not give them the opportunity to be the leaders that they can be. Uh, the institutional uh, uh, structures uh, basically does not let women be the leader they can be. So it's a book designed for men and for organizations that are struggling to get women in influential positions, and it'll be a roadmap on how to do that. So that'll be out hopefully after the first year. The second one is a project that I and I still have my fingers in the pie for the CPA uh, profession. It's a, a series. It's a leading edge self study program 
that the person who is either considering being a controller or a CFO or has just become a CFO or controller uh, to teach them all the things that they need to know and how to be successful very quickly because that is a those are both challenging jobs and it's in a fun way is I've got videos of myself I've got lots of humor I'm using uh, new teaching techniques that do not exist in the profession right now and I, I just had a lot of fun and pizzazz so that they will after six hours of self-study be able to uh, to use that information to be successful and have impact on their their organizations and that's going to be out after the first of the year as well so those are two of my passion projects no excellent and then we'll include all of that in our show notes i know that uh, you're already uh, on facebook and uh, you have an excellent website as well and i will include those links uh, are you also on twitter or any of the other social media yeah, twitter uh, instagram um i've also linkedin uh, both uh, business and personal facebook business and personal so i try to be in social media as much as i can and i'm still learning how to do that and then we'll include all of that in our show notes so that way people can reach out to you and as well as uh, find out more about your upcoming book as well as the course that you talked about. And I, I'm fascinated about the CFO and uh, six-hour course. I think uh, definitely would be a lot of good information there. Uh, for any entrepreneur or business guy, I think that would be uh, something that uh, one can learn a lot from. From um, Sounds more like practical trips uh, tips to uh, succeed in the area of finance now the other question is what are three things you're grateful for in life today life liberty and this what we call the source wherever this thing we call life began whatever that source is i'm grateful for that no it's uh, beautiful excellent and then uh, this has been really fascinating and I've really enjoyed every bit of it. Is there anything that you want to share that I may not have asked you? I think you pretty much asked a, a, a lot of questions. If, if you were to ask me where I'm going with this is I want to influence more people. And so I'm looking for ways to do that. I also have ideas for about 40 more books. Um, and I hope to do that uh, while I'm still able to. So look for additional uh, books. And basically, when I write a book, it's it's like a story. So it unfolds like a novel. It unfolds like a book that you can't put down because you know you don't know where the character is going with it, and yet it's about a leader aspect of leadership. So look for some more books. No, that is great, and I want to acknowledge you on uh, for a few things here. <clears throat> One is that uh, you know having that vision and having that uh, audacity to make that choice when this culture and the society at that early on in your life uh, did not necessarily lean towards uh, choosing business as a profession, but you actually questioned that and you took a journey uh, all the way from Southern California to uh, the Pacific Northwest and having achieved all the accolades of the corporate success that we know of. And then finally coming to a point in life and realizing that uh, there is more to it than just being a CFO and then choosing uh, another track of being a speaker and making a difference, making an impact and like being an idea machine that you are and helping people really uh, seek their own greatness in their own ways. And uh, what a amazing contribution that you are to not only the not uh, NSA speaker community here in the Pacific Northwest, but uh, everybody who comes in uh, touch with you through Toastmasters or through community. And uh, so thank you for doing what you're doing and uh, really, uh, admire uh, your leadership and the contribution that you made 
I appreciate that, Cal. Uh, okay, thanks for this opportunity to share with your audience. You're very welcome. And then uh, one final question, and that is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? The, the answer is in the word, wisdom, is that we have a certain amount of knowledge, and the way that we acquire, acquire new wisdom is to listen to others' words. And so not just your words, uh, the, the words of those people that you interview. So it, it grows exponentially. If I listen to one person, I get some new ideas. I listen to two people, it, it grows by three. If I listen to five people, it grows to 10 or 15. And so that's what you're able to do. And using the new medium, of course, of, of social media uh, and, of course, the podcast, you're able to reach people in ways that I could not have imagined as a child. So I encourage you to keep doing that. And I think that that's your best gift is sharing wisdom so that everybody becomes uh, much better and greater. Thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, amazing feedback there. And uh, again, once again, thank you for your time and uh, really enjoyed our conversation. And for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Raz. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, Wisdom of friends.net to your friends and colleagues be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on itunes rate and leave a review it's very much appreciated thank Thank you. you this has been a seven symphonies production join us next time for another edition of the wisdom of friends